This is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is the great deputy editor of Grants, Evan Lorenz. Good morning, Evan. Good morning. And Evan is in the same uh, same room, in the same borough as um, I, which is a rarity in this day and age of um, remoteness. So it's good. You look familiar, Evan. It's good to see you again. And uh, Harrison Waddell is at the control panel this morning. And, and... Our guest today is Steve Forbes, who happens to be the world's leading authority on the Democratic contest for the 1892 presidential campaign. Wow, you did your and research. the <laughs> chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media, and himself a noted, indeed, singular podcaster of the podcast What's Ahead, author of books, uh, presidential contender, 1896, 1896, I stood out of the way for McKinley in 1896. <laughs> well, perhaps, uh, certainly it was the country's loss, uh, but it might well have been your gain that you remained a civilian in those two contests. I don't know, it seems like a tough job. But um, Evan, I, I, I noticed that... Um, uh, markets uh, seem to be a little discombobulated these days. Yeah. I, I, after the last couple of years, I didn't know they can go down. Yeah. This seems unauthorized. Uh, more of that in a moment. But uh, first, ladies and gentlemen, a word from our sponsor. Hey, no one has a business like yours with all its strengths and difficulties. To succeed, you need a hiring partner that adapts to your needs. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data U.S. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash grant, G-R-A-N-T, and offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash grant, Indeed.com slash grant. Terms and conditions apply. Pay per qualified applicant, not available for all users. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, Right, that's a word. Right, uh, really, the uh, the product that we're sponsoring today, uh, Arison, will you please display the product? Good. The book is called Inflation. It's by Steve Forbes, Nathan Lewis, and Elizabeth Ames. What what it is, why it's bad, and how to fix it. A new book, Inflation. It's a wonderful primer, and uh, for anyone who doesn't know, you must possess the book and present same to that person. Um, Steve, good morning. Good morning, Jim, Evan, Harrison. Good to, good to be with you. Yeah, well, it is great to have you. And uh, by the way, when uh, Evan said that uh, markets could only go up back in the 1990s, when we had a similar period, this fellow talked about his uh, grandmother. She had a he gave made sure she had a money market checking account. She said, "It's wonderful. I write checks, and the balance goes up each month." <laughs> <laughs> That's when we had real interest rates. Steve. Interest rates you could you could be proud of. Um, Steve, what is the basic premise of inflation? I gather you're rather again it. Well, it reminds me of uh, back in the 20s when Calvin Coolidge went to church and he came out and the reporters uh, asked uh, how was the service. He said, fine. He liked the uh, preacher's uh, sermon. And they asked uh, Coolidge, what was the sermon about? Coolidge said, sin. And the reporters asked, uh, so what did the preacher say about it? Coolidge said he was against it. (laughs) <laughs> and and so too on inflation, <laughs> I'm against it. So you know, we, we shouldn't have inflation, deflation. We should have inflation. Right. We should have uh, like markets moving prices as markets will do, uh, rather than. Well, this uh, this this gets to uh, what 
central bankers don't seem to understand, not to mention many others, is that uh, money makes it possible to buy and sell with each other. It's simply a measure of value. Uh, when you go to a restaurant, for example, you check your coat, what do you get? Coat check, piece of plastic, piece of paper, in and of itself worth nothing, but you know it's a claim on a real product, a ticket to an event, claim on a real product or service, whether it's a piece of paper or ellipsis on your handheld, and so too with money. It is like a claim check. It enables you to claim other products in the marketplace. That's how we're able to do billions of transactions each day. So it's just a measure of value. And when you start fooling around with the value, then it's like a virus in a computer. It corrupts the information. Prices are supposed to tell us what uh, people like, what people don't like, enabling us to uh, do numerous transactions, buying and selling with each other. And when the price becomes corrupted, uh, the information, I should say, becomes corrupted, uh, you get bad results. Yeah. And uh, you, you assume, for example, when you buy a gallon of gasoline, it is fixed in terms of size. It doesn't float. Or a pound of cheese. You don't have 16 ounces one day, 20 ounces the next, 12 ounces the day depends, after. Depends where you shop. Uh, well, New York, yes, okay. Or Chicago with vote counting. But, but anyway, fixed weights and measures make right. markets work. And money should be just a measure of value. And when they start fooling with it, bad things happen. Stephen, I, I was reading your book and um, I was struck that, uh, first of all, you found it necessary to devote an entire chapter to why inflation is bad. One would suppose that that would be intuitive. And yet you and your co-authors develop this idea at some length. Why? Uh, because I think people are now grasping once again what is going on. And we think of inflation as rising prices, but it is far deeper than that. It, uh, it, it's uh, when you devalue a currency, lower the value, you uh, have things happen. People don't understand why prices are going up. And it also, as we discuss in the book, it undermines social trust. That is, if money is trustworthy, we can do transactions even if we don't know one another. And this enables these elaborate arrangements all around the world, commercial arrangements, supply chains and the like. And so when uh, you mess that up, people don't understand what's happening. When trust goes down, it affects also other social relationships. Countries that routinely debase their money have more crime and violence because trust goes down. So it's not just economic or what you pay at the marketplace. It undermines the, ultimately the fabric of society. Good example. I was, I, was, yes, yeah, I was interested to read in your in your book, Inflation, that there is a stronger correlation between inflation and crime than there is between inflation and joblessness. That's right. There's a wonderful book called When Money Dies by Adam yeah, Ferguson, yeah, the uh, early 1920s, the hyperinflation in Germany. Before that hyperinflation, Germany was probably the most law-abiding nation in the world. And you see remnants of today. They don't jaywalk in Germany. When New York City, it's a natural given right. You, you, you stay, nobody's coming and they stand there in the corner as if they were, <laughs> they were right. yeah. But uh, with the uh, hyperinflation, all that went out the window, obeying with the old virtues, you were a sucker if you were. Okay, you didn't, I'm, I'm you gonna, didn't look to yeah, the future. Yeah. And so that uh, we saw with that undermining of social trust where that led in Germany. So it can be a slow motion kind as yeah. we've had since uh, the early 1970s, but it's just as acidic long term. Uh, I'm going to read to you a sentence from a book uh, by Henry Adams, a great uh, American historian. 
and uh, grand, grandson of John Quincy Adams and great-grandson of, of uh, John Adams. And uh, Adams's uh, Life of Albert Gallatin is the book from which I'm going to read one sentence, Gallatin being the longest tenured Treasury Secretary in the history of America. He served under both uh, uh, Jefferson and, uh, and Madison. And here is Henry Adams describing Albert Gallatin's view of the, uh, of the moral significance of monetary regime. Quote, Mr. Gallatin's writings dealt mainly and avowedly with the currency because he believed that the condition of the currency was the responsible cause of much of, if not most, of the moral degradation of his time and that a return to a sound metallic medium of exchange um, was a means of purifying society, purifying society. Yeah, well, you got to, uh, unfortunately, uh, in the 20th century, purify was a word that uh, took on racial connotations in the 30s. But the point of Gallatin is absolutely true, that when uh, a government, for example, sees it as a moral duty to maintain uh, the integrity of the currency, uh, society, you know you shouldn't break the norms. And when those things break down, it infects everything. Uh, you don't have understandings of what you do and don't do. And, and, and one of the dangerous things is that you don't look at the future the same way. You don't know what you're going to get back if you make a long-term investment. You get less productive investment. So when anyone ever asks me, should I invest in gold? I know we have a problem. Gold, to me, is an insurance policy against bad government behavior. But when people turn to it, it's because trust is going down. Well, people certainly invested for the long run at... Um infinite duration equities when inflation was uh, in season in this country. I mean, there's the whole um, bubble in, uh, you know, tech bubbles are invariably about infinite duration investing horizons. No, because there's no dividend, there's no prospect of a dividend with profitless companies. So it's not as if people lacked conviction about the future. The future is going to be great on the wings of this monetary lilt, right? So, well, it's a different kind of future. It's really presentism, because you're taking the gain now, not based on any analysis of what the future could actually hold. You just want a fairy tale, good, you go for it, and you fly with it. That was the whole thing about meme stock. People in this city have endowed foundations with that very idea. So it's a, que it's a question of when you get out. You know, I, I wanted to ask you also about, um, about some, another intriguing um, uh, piece of information I discovered in your book, Inflation, and that is your co-author, uh, Nathan Lewis um, was an advisor to Vladimir Putin at one point. This, is, this doesn't sound good in uh, May of 2022, but uh, this goes back uh, many, many years. And uh, as I read here, uh, Mr. Lewis commenced or was instrumental, perhaps, in persuading Vladimir Putin to institute a 13% flat tax this is about the year 2000. And lo and behold, I, I heard that idea somewhere else too, the flat tax idea. Well, the amazing thing about uh, that was is that uh, one, during the 1990s, uh, the International Monetary Fund was giving rotten advice to uh, Russia, telling them to raise taxes, even though they had four different tax systems. And it was under, uh, it was under Putin's uh, predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, that the move started to uh, simplify the tax code, put in a flat tax. And Putin just said, okay, let's do it. But the real groundwork had been done in the late 1990s. So it wasn't uh, directly advising. It was uh, the people who preceded Putin who put it all in place. And then uh, Putin was smart enough to uh, let it happen. Now, of course, they're backtracking as they are in everything else. But the key thing is, 
terms of uh, Russia, uh, there's another incident in 2008, 2009, the ruble came under pressure and uh, they did the usual junk raising interest rates and railing against speculators. And they then read an article by Nathan uh, saying you should reduce the monetary base. They did and the ruble stabilized. But again, that was short-lived. So uh, it wasn't, uh, uh, Nathan didn't get to sit down with Vladimir and say, here, here's how you do things. It was getting advice to the proper people who got the, persuaded the supreme leader in this case to do it. But the amazing thing is if Yeltsin had just stayed in power, uh, the flat tax would have been done, the economy would have recovered because when they stabilized the ruble, had a flat tax, 13%, the economy took off for a while before the, uh, so it's before all, the kleptocrats came in and uh, started to ruin it. It's almost as if low taxes and sound money were a useful formula for economic success. Always been true. Nathan wrote a book called The Magic Formula. Uh, low taxes, sound money, by golly, good things happen. And it enables other good things to happen. If you have that discipline, keep the rates low, keep the money stable, then other good things happen. See, in this book, you come out four square for a gold standard. You're not quite specific about whether it's going to be a gold coin standard whereby anyone can convert uh, paper into bullion at a fixed and statutory rate as it, as, uh, at, uh, you know, at levels of as low as, say, $20 or whether it's going to be kind of a gold bullion standard. But anyway, you, you're for the gold, a gold standard. So my question to you is, um, and I know in this, in this book, I've, I've read your um, objections to gold, uh, six or eight of them, and answers to those objections. But one you don't address is the seemingly hopeless anachronism of basing money on a tangible thing. This, this, this uh, moment in history, is all, or at least has been, maybe less so today, but it's all about invisible digital things. Uh, people pay real, actually real fiat currency for things you can't see, touch, or even possess, as in the case of NFTs. How do you surmount the objection that what you're proposing is a step backwards towards anachronism rather than forwards towards the brave future. Well, it's a step forward because just as fixed weights and measures in the marketplace, everyone sees the goodness of that, just makes life infinitely easier. Uh, so too comes the question, how do you get a stable value for money? And for a variety of reasons, for thousands of years, gold is the best, not perfect, but it is the best. It's to withstood this test of time. If somebody had come up with something better, we would have it today. So you uh, look at the reasons, the way it's a mind. It's rare, but not too rare. You can't destroy it. And uh, it's very easy to move around. So it has a variety of things. So you don't get to have to worry about supply shocks. Good looking, you too. Don't, and uh, and, and yeah. nice to look at. Uh, but so it keeps the dollar stable in value. And one of the things we point out in the book, from the 1790s to the 1970s, despite a civil war, world wars, depressions, political convulsions, we had the highest average growth rate of any state in history. Between the late 40s, whatever you think of the Bretton Woods International Monetary System, certainly better than what we have today. The average growth rate was 4.2%. Since then, from then, uh, the late 60s, early 70s to 2019, before COVID uh, messed up everything, the average growth had fallen to 2.7%. That doesn't sound like much, but you compound that over half a century, and the result is devastating. Household income today, median is 67,000. If we'd maintain those historic growth rates, 
that number would be 100 to 110,000. Now, wouldn't people be a little happier today with 30 or 40,000 dollars of extra Steve, income? Steve, what do you say to the objection that the um, uh, the 40s, 50s, and early 60s uh, flourished in good part because of the unique position the America America occupied after World War II? Well, uh, let's look at the rest of the world. Uh, contrary to all the experts, after World War II, when you lost tens of millions of people, massive physical uh, destruction. Everyone thought it'd be generations before we can recover. Thanks to uh, the safety provided by the United States, Western Europe and Japan exceeded pre-war levels of production within a few years after the end of the war. So you can't say, oh, we're just recovering from the war, or the U.S. had a unique position. The U.S. had a unique position precisely because, one, we had the, the oceans in those days, but more importantly, we had the most open society in terms of economic freedom. You could come over here, try things, do things, and that's the thing about a free market. One, it always adjusts to changing times and circumstances and enables people from the most unlikely backgrounds to end up achieving doing great things. So that's what made us move forward. And it was when we started to move back on that, uh, raising taxes, uh, uh, putting in more and more regulations, thinking government could solve all social problems, that we started to get the kind of environment that afflicts us to this day. So go back to basic principles, and by golly, we will grow 4% a year again, despite what the experts say, it's impossible, all the easy low-hanging fruit has been taken, because you don't know what the future is. You go back 30 or 40 years, try to resurrect somebody, Try to explain to them what the internet is. You would have a hard time. They couldn't comprehend what you're talking about. I know, the, I know Harrison every day tries to tell me what a cell phone is. I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a wonderful cartoon uh, of a guy uh, feeding his uh, baby. And he says, when you get to uh, hard foods, you got to uh, do the soft mirror on my uh, PC. I'm, <laughs> I'm having trouble. Yeah. <laughs> um, Steve, it seems like the desire for sound money is a cyclical phenomenon. In the last decade, it seems like a strong currency was kind of the old maid in international hands. I think it was 2009 or 2010 where the finance minister of Brazil accused the U.S. of engaging in a currency war. It wasn't because the U.S. was propping up the dollar. It's because QE was causing the dollar to fall. And China, over the last decade, accumulated currency reserves at one point of $4 trillion, holding down the value of the renminbi to support its exports. Do you think people are coming around to the conclusion that a weak currency, while it might temporarily juice exports, has longer-term consequences than the well, desire? Well, this, this gets the whole thing that uh, wise people can uh, get uh, better economic results by manipulating things. The whole idea, gee, if we uh, uh, jigger the uh, currency, we'll get more exports. No, you end up doing more harm to the economy than good. Hong Kong has had a stable, relatively stable value because it's fixed, uh, put in a, a currency board in the early 1980s. They once had a governor back in the 1960s, a guy named Copperthwaite, ah, who, 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 who banned the bureaucrats from, a, from getting trade statistics and the like because he says if you get those numbers and you feel you've got to do something about it, and bad things will happen. So get over the idea, oh, we must have export-led growth. No, you have an open society. Make it easy to start a business, low tax rates, sound money. By golly, not only do you create domestic capital, starting with sweat capital, but capital starts to come in if they feel it's trustworthy and they can take a chance on the future. So you don't have to do all the, engage in all this stuff. All this stuff is to give people who uh, have nice degrees something to do. They would do more good for the world being Uber drivers or something else than uh, telling these countries, here's the quick way to wealth. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to a, um, a Bachelor of Arts from Princeton University. <laughs> <laughs> Princeton what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of it. Ben, ben Bernanke's alma mater. 
No, not alma mater. He's an employer. I'm going to read another, Former employer. Um, another quote from um, uh, Henry Adams. Quote, the wisest government with the purest views uh, never has... Uh, damn, if I had better vision. I, uh, you know what, Evan? You are going to read this quote. No, Steve Forbes, you're going to read this quotation. The wisest government right here. You can read it with feeling. See that? Oh, the wisest government with the purest views never has any other means of ascertaining whether the amount of a paper money is too limited or excessive than the price of the precious metals in such paper, because those metals are, of all others, the commodity least liable to variations in its value. The rate of exchanges may occasionally be a more sensitive test to regulate the amount of paper money. That's true that, right? Yes, and, yeah. uh, and, and, and uh, better than silver, which once upon a time you had a pretty well fixed ratio of uh, gold to silver, which is why we started out yeah. doing, doing, yeah. doing both. But uh, silver mining methods did improve. The rise of paper money didn't need as much coinage relatively. So uh, gold is it. And uh, again, not perfect. Human beings are not perfect, but it's better than anything else. And again, it hurts when you don't have that stable money, you get social problems, and you get less long-term economic growth. It's a moral issue. Yeah, all right. What are you doing with your money these days, Steve? I mean, uh, I've, I've read carefully your book called Inflation, and um, the ideas uh, put forward about investing are, 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 I think, quite sensible. But I was looking for a, like, a, like a ticker or a Q-sip uh, in there. I couldn't find So do uh, you, you have any ideas for the listeners of Current Yield about, uh, you know? Well, I have they, to. They, uh, won't, they and, won't tell and, anybody. Just, uh, just yeah. for, Now, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll uh, preface it just in the name of full disclosure, a favorite saying of my grandfather who founded our company in 1917. He was an immigrant to this country, grade school education, one of 10 children, and uh, became a business reporter and then founded uh, Forbes in 1917. B.C. Forbes. B.C. Forbes. And he would be asked. You know, what's the economy going to do? What stock should you buy? Where are interest rates going? And he invariably reply, we make more money selling the advice than following it. <laughs> so uh, so full, full, full disclosure. In terms of, and that's why in the book, knowing that uh, specific uh, stocks or assets may change because of changing circumstance, and there's no easy way to do it. We, we, in fact, in this book, we quote a cover story of Forbes in the mid-1970s when we had the terrible inflation of the 1970s. The cover story was how to protect yourself and get rich from inflation. Then we, uh, uh, at the beginning of the article, we say, okay, uh, there's no w real way you, you to do it. You bought the magazine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so, but, but, but it's absolutely true. And you have to do, for example, hard assets. Well, uh, there are different kinds of hard assets, as we all know. Uh, do you buy a commercial building in New York? Hmm, well, maybe not. Uh, in another part of the country, apartment buildings may be a great thing to do. So you have to do real homework. You also have to prepare. And you know, so yes, you want uh, dividend stocks that uh, have shown they can weather rough weather and maybe even raise the dividend during uh, troubled times. Uh, gold, you know, there are royalty of companies you can do, mining companies or the stuff itself. I like the stuff itself as an insurance policy. But the key thing also you have to keep in mind at some point, the inflation gets conquered. Maybe only temporary, but at some point it gets conquered. And so the stuff that you that was working during when people thought prices were going to go up 8, 10, 15% a year forever, suddenly goes bad. And so you have to be nimble and know what worked in one period may not work in another. Classic case is 1970s. Oil went from $3 a barrel to almost $40 a barrel. Everyone thought, again, because of the corruption of prices, that that meant we were running out of the stuff. So you had a lot of misallocation of capital. Early 80s. Inflation gets conquered, 
Guess what happens? Oil crashes from about $38 down to $12, $10, $12, finally stabilized at $20 to $25. Did oil suddenly uh, go down in value, up in value? No, what it reflected was the dollar got weak during the 1970s, not that oil became dear. You saw the same thing in the early 2000s when uh, amazingly Greenspan, who pays attention to gold, uh, lost sight of it. And uh, so you had commodity prices start to move up again. You had uh, oil go from $20, $25 a barrel to $100 a barrel. Food prices went up. And uh, again, was that suddenly shortages, running out of stuff, peak production, and all that kind of nonsense? No, it was a weakening of the dollar. And that's why, again, uh, when, you have this, when you have this kind of uncertainty, you can't trust the marketplaces. I can't trust you anymore not because you're bad or good, but because the medium we're using to try to make something happen is it changes. And speculation uh, suddenly becomes a, a great. Paul Volcker, in a movie we did called In Money We Trust, pointed out that if a period of time, profits in the financial industry zoomed as a proportion of the economy. Was it suddenly finance became a great new thing of the future? No, it was reflecting the conditions created by uh, ever-weakening dollar, massive amounts of money printing and the like. So, uh, Again, you want to move forward, you got to do it the old-fashioned way and the inspiring way, knowing that uh, honest work, taking a chance, you have a chance to move ahead and not just being more nimble than somebody else and getting in and out of something. It sounds like there's inflation and due diligence too. Well, when it goes, uh, well, this is again, getting back to Adam Ferguson, when money dies, the, the, the behavior that uh, was once accepted as a way you would move ahead in a society and make a society work suddenly doesn't work anymore. And you're confused as to why. Keynes got one thing right. He said not one in a million understands what is happening when uh, money starts to lose value. Except there are some who do. And one of the things I want to commend uh, Steve Forbes and your co-authors, Nathan Lewis and Elizabeth Ames, on is the timing of this modest volume of yours, thin volume, this thin readable volume of yours. How do you figure out that its very appearance would coincide with a PPI rising, what, 11%? 11%? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm it's a humble a, man. It's a magic formula. But it was just genius. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, it, it was clear uh, Anyone over a year ago. Anyone can see that coming. No, no, no. But it was clear a year ago when the Federal Reserve in the, announced that they were going to continue creating $120 billion a month buying bonds, that something was going to go wrong. Uh, one of the points we make in the book, there are two kinds of inflation. We do this just because it, the, the things get confused. Monetary inflation and non-monetary. Non-monetary, you have a drought. So crop prices may temporarily go up. You have a war, it disrupts production. You have the lockdowns, which totally disrupts supply chains all around the world. And they totally underestimated, by the way, how long it takes to recover from that. Countries are doing different things. You have all different conditions. People have made new arrangements. It's not like a light switch as these geniuses thought. So, but normally with a non-monetary inflation, as we discovered after World War II, eventually it works its way out. You get more production of this. You think things start to return to normal. The non, uh, and unfortunately in this case with non-monetary inflation, uh, it was one thing to uh, make emergency appropriations when you gratuitously shut the economy down. But in 2021, it was clear the Federal Reserve was going to continue to create money, even though the immediate emergency was over. And the reason the, the reason we don't have a worse situation today is the Fed then resorted to a gimmick, which in, is going to end badly. And that is they created the money, bought the $120 billion of bonds. Your listeners know that uh, what happens is the Fed will call up, say, Goldman Sachs and say, give us a billion dollars of government bonds. 
Goldman says, fine, they deliver the bonds. And then uh, the Fed credits Goldman's bank account. Where does the money come from? Boom, the ultimate ATM out of thin air. But what the Fed then did was, uh, after creating the money, it then overnight borrowed the money back through a device called reverse repurchase agreements. In essence, they just borrowed it back. It was like taking a bucket of water, pouring it in one end of a pool, and then taking the, uh, then removing the water from the other end of the pool. And so if you look at the Fed's balance sheet in February of 2021, when they started this, and we started to say, gee, we better do this book, was that item on their Fed balance sheet, which comes out every Thursday, was zero, that particular item. Today, the last I looked was $1.85 trillion of short-term borrowing. So they created the money and then removed it. And they probably thought they're such geniuses at doing that. But what that is, is a huge overhang on the economy. And that money belongs to money funds and banks. They can take that back. So as we move forward and people start to borrow again, as you know, the M's come from when uh, people start to lending and borrowing and things like that. Question then becomes, the question then becomes, what kind of monetary new uh, about potential about devastating about monetary inflation is coming. So uh, we have this weird situation. So that's why we wrote the book. We ju- you just know this thing's not going to have a happy ending. You can't time these things. For example, in the foreign exchange markets, you have a real decline in the Japanese yen. And uh, that could be a real crisis. Uh, the English pound and uh, the euro uh, falling down in value. Uh, the dollar moving up, not because the dollar is a great currency, but because everything else may be even worse. We're in uncharted territories. And the other thing we hit in this book is the Fed figures the way you fight inflation is by slowing an economy down. That is, prosperity is not the cause of inflation. I was just reading an article today in the paper that said uh, the, uh, the Fed's, one of the Fed's tasks is preventing overheating of the economy. What in the world does overheating mean? Do people going to work suddenly start to sweat and say, gee, I'm, 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 the, the, I'm, I'm making too much money, uh, take, take it away because I can't sleep at night? No, the whole thing, uh, if an economy is prosperous, uh, you get more people competing, you get more production. We have a global economy, not just a domestic economy. So bottom line is, long way of saying it, the Fed should have only two tasks or of three. Okay, it's banker for the government. And by the way, if you ever look at that Fed balance sheet, one of the amusing numbers or mind-boggling numbers, the Fed, uh, the Treasury has a checking account in the Fed at, at, at the Fed. And the last I looked was their checking account had nine hundred sixty-three billion dollars. So, uh, but uh, so they do the banking services for the government. They do some regulation. But the two big things they should do: one, keep the dollar stable in value, and two, deal with the occasional crisis and panic, temporary, and then you step back. But the Fed now got into global warming, social blah 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 blah. blah. So uh, the Fed is overreach. And by the way, one other thing, I've got to get it off my chest. Why are they setting interest rates? Uh, that, is a form, right. that, that is a form of price control. You know, we all know, price, or at least most people know, price control, rent controls, for example, hurts new construction. It ends up distorting the market. New York City, why does it cost $10,000 to rent an apartment? No, but borrowing and interest rates is the price you pay for renting the money. And when the Fed sets it or tries to set it, It's just a matter of how much damage they will do. Have you ever seen an institution so sure that it can manage something, but so misunderstand the thing itself? No, and and that's very important. The idea that a handful of people at the Fed, nice grand building up, make great uh, condos, but anyway, a handful of people can guide 
the activities of 300 plus million people doing literally billions of buy-sell decisions each day is so preposterous, and yet we accept it as gospel. Oh, yes, they must slow the economy down or speed the economy up. We're not machines. Well, uh, it's not just that we're not machines, but it's such a, a 180 from what they said last year. Last year, they specifically said, we're going to run the economy hot in order to juice unemployment. This year, we're going to cool down the economy so it doesn't hot up. Last year, one of the regional Fed presidents, Mary Daly, said, and I'm going to quote this from memory, we are not thinking about talking about raising rates. They were actually doing QE through March 15th of this year when the uh, CPI actually rose 8.6% year over year. Now the regional Fed presidents and Fed governors are tripping over themselves to be the most hawkish out there who can throw out the, you know, the most basis points, hikes in, in a meeting. But this is uh, such a giant shift in just about six months. You know what they, they are? They are blackbirds on a power line. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you have been listening, ladies and gentlemen, to Steve Forbes. He's running for president. Yeah, next time, uh, look out, Trump. And um, so thank you for being here, Stephen. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. timing and, uh, of this volume keep, 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 and on the volume. I mean, um, bravo, and, bravo. And, and, and keep up the good work. All right. Because, uh, and by the way, in closing, you know, they talk about cancel culture. There's cancel culture in economics, and that is Don't gold. we know it. Remember, when you, you, remember you, when you and I were, we were <laughs> on the Upper West Side, that was the wrong place. We yeah. were debating the, the gold standard. Were we for it against? Oh, yeah, yes, we were for it. And we were up against the companies, two guys, two guys. You didn't know anything. One was a former Fed governor. Well, that tells you what you need to know. And so, uh, yeah, you have cancel. You cannot discuss G-O-L-D, ask uh, Judy Shelton, uh, among uh, policymakers and economists. We hope to change that, at least start to get a discussion. And that's not going to come from our brilliance. It's going to come from the pressure of events. Practical Americans are practical people. They're going to see this is not working very well. Let's look at what went wrong. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And you know for whom to vote next time you're in a... a, a I don't care whether his name's in the ballot. Vote for Steve Forbes. <laughs> Harrison, good to see you. Evan, ditto. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, especially good to see you, if only in my mind. Talk soon. Jim Grant, on behalf of The Current Yield. 